From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Spring has finally sprung. March flew by for us here at Terra Informa, and there have been plenty of news headlines piling up. Time to discuss some of them in this month's News Roundup episode. My name is Hannah Cunningham. And I'm Tiana Barra-Cross. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and stories and ideas. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. This episode was produced in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papaschase Cree territory. The Papaschase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver, to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty rights to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we're catching you up on all the environmental news headlines you might have missed in this past month. We will also be introducing a segment that focuses on updates from land and water defenders across Turtle Island. There are some headlines that broke this month that you probably got a hang on by now, including ones about large, fictional, hairy humanoids vilifying Alberta's oil sands. Now, while we could spend a chunk of time covering the Alberta War Room slash Canadian Energy Center's tirade, against an animated children's movie about a family trying to protect a wildlife sanctuary from an oil company. We'll leave that to our resident Bigfoot expert, Zeke, who you might remember from last year's Terra Misinforma episode. In the meantime, let's dive into the news. For our first story, here's Andrea Miller covering the introduction of a new bill that aims to address the legacy of environmental racism in Nova Scotia. A new bill targeting environmental racism on a national scale has been introduced in the House of Commons. Last month, Nova Scotia Liberal MP Lenore Zan put forward a private member's bill, Bill C-230, or the National Strategy to Redress Environmental Racism Act. The first version of this bill was initially proposed in 2014 in the provincial legislature when Zan was an NDP MLA in Nova Scotia. Now, the first of its kind in Canada, Bill C-230 would have national implications. This rights-based environmental bill would protect the human rights of racialized communities across Canada to clean air and water. The idea for Bill C-230 emerged from the research of Dr. Ingrid Waldron, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University and Director of the Environmental Noxiousness Racial Inequities and Community Health Project, or ENRICH. In her work, Waldron has focused on environmental racism in Nova Scotia, the disproportionate proximity of Black and Indigenous communities to landfills, pulp and paper mills, energy projects, and petrochemical facilities. 
sites that are environmentally hazardous, as well as damaging to human health. These same communities are disproportionately feeling the impacts of climate change. Waldron's 2018 book on the subject, titled There's Something in the Water, was adapted for a 2019 Netflix documentary of the same name, featuring actor Elliot Page. We spoke with Dr. Waldron about her research in our July 20th, 2020 episode, which you can find on our website. The proposed bill aims to create a national strategy to take action against environmental racism. This would include gathering data to understand the links between race, socioeconomic status, environmental risk, and negative health outcomes, data that is not currently collected in Canada. Provincial and federal environmental laws and policies would also be evaluated and amended. The bill also calls for reparations to affected communities and greater involvement of these communities in policymaking. Residents of the African Nova Scotian community of Lincolnville have been experiencing the impacts of a contaminated landfill site since the 1970s. Bill C-230 is being championed by Dr. Waldron, the Black Environmental Initiative, and with support from former Green Party leader Elizabeth May. As of March 24th, the bill has now passed its second reading, with a 182 to 153 vote, and will be referred to a committee for further consideration. The next steps in the legislative process are a third reading in the House of Commons, passage by the Senate, and then royal assent before coming into force. Check out our website to learn more about the Enrich Project and how you can support a national strategy to redress environmental racism. Thanks, Andrea. Now moving west, here's Liam Harrop covering conflict between First Nations and Ducks Unlimited over water control structures in Manitoba. In the largest freshwater delta in North America, there is a sprawling network of dams, diversions, dikes, ditches, drains, and culverts. This sprawling network of water control is on the Saskatchewan River in Manitoba, which is one of the main breeding grounds for waterfowl on the continent. While these structures were constructed under the pretense of helping ducks, the Briarpatch magazine recently reported that these controls might be causing serious damage. For many people in the Opaswiak Cree Nation, their livelihood depends on the Saskatchewan River. However, the water control structures have displaced people, fish, and animals from traditional sites. The structures were installed by Ducks Unlimited, a private charitable organization with annual revenues of $95 million in 2019. The Briarpatch magazine reported that Ducks Unlimited deserves its own chapter in the story of colonial water control in our nation, as it controls more land and water in Canada than all First Nations combined. The goal of the organization is to generate more ducks for hunting. The seeds for the company were planted in 1929 by New York City newspaper mogul Joseph Knapp. The belief at the time was to help nature be more bountiful. In the 1930s, it was discovered that 85% of ducks in North America came from the Midwest, including Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. In 1937, 
Ducks Unlimited in Canada was founded. Over the next 70 years, U.S. donors would funnel nearly $1 billion into water control activities in Canada. The organization's typical approach was to dam water from flowing out through existing channels and build dikes along the river and water edges to prevent water from flooding into surrounding fields. Ducks Unlimited immediately targeted the Saskatchewan River Delta in Manitoba. The Canadian government gave the organization permission to build a dam on the Opaswiak Cree Nation territory in 1958, without consultation of the indigenous people at the time. The actual purpose of Ducks Unlimited water control structures on the river remain a source of suspicion for locals, reported Briar Patch magazine. The Opaswiak Cree Nation said waterfowl populations have plummeted and there are fewer animals in the area, at least compared to historic times. Many of Canada's wetland conservation strategies were crafted after Duck Unlimited policies, and the organization still gets major donor dollars from Canada's biggest banks and oil companies, including Enbridge, Royal Bank of Canada, and the Bank of Montreal. Regardless, the Opaswiak Cree Nation says Duck Unlimited policies are causing more harm than good, at least in the Saskatchewan River. Many people from the nation would like the dams and culverts removed and said fishers and trappers should be compensated by the organization for the loss of their livelihood. Cecilia Ross from the Opaswiak Cree Nation told Briarpatch Magazine that, I think man should just leave nature alone. Let it do its own thing. Things were good. Things were better. Leave things be. Terra Informa will continue following this story as it develops. Thanks, Liam. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're bringing you a news roundup episode with a bunch of the environmental headlines from the past month. So far, we've covered the introduction of a bill that aims to address the legacy of environmental racism in Nova Scotia, and how Ducks Unlimited Power as an established conservation organization is creating problems for First Nations in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Up next, I'll be sharing the first of a new recurring segment we'll be featuring in our News Roundup episodes, where we share updates from land and water defenders across Turtle Island. This is Hannah Cunningham here to give you updates on the work that Indigenous land and water defenders have been doing over the past month. Let's begin on the West Coast. Land defenders, many of them Indigenous youth, have been fighting against the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion since its approval. However, over the past few months, there have been a number of actions and occupations that have taken place. In February of this year, a group of Indigenous youth from Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and other First Nations gathered in downtown Vancouver to occupy the offices of Chubb Insurance Company of Canada offices, one of the 11 insurers backing the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. The occupation consisted of a sit-in inside the offices, as well as defenders standing outside the building hanging banners of protest and red dresses that symbolize missing and murdered Indigenous women. The organizers called for the project to be halted to prevent environmental disruption, 
and also to call attention to the link between violence against Indigenous women and the presence of man camps during the project that house industry workers. The same group also occupied the offices of Liberty Mutual Group, who acts as an insurer for the expansion project and was also an insurer for the now-defunct Keystone XL pipeline. The Vancouver Police Department were present at both occupations, and according to interviews done with land defenders by the Taiyi, some arrests were attempted but were not successful. In addition to the Vancouver occupations of the offices of project insurers, multiple actions have been taking place in the city of Burnaby, the end of the pipeline that is located in Tsleil-Waututh territory. Prayer circles have been formed at the construction site in Burnaby, as well as blockades of the intersection near the port held by a group of youth called the Braided Warriors. Indigenous and community leaders have stated that the month of March was to mark the beginning of a, quote, new wave of action, end quote, against the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. These will take place alongside occupations and actions that have been ongoing, including a watch house in Burnaby organized and occupied by Coast Salish community members where ceremonies are performed to oppose the project, a treehouse camp located near the watch house where organizers work to delay the clearing of over a thousand trees adjacent to the Brunette River, which is salmon habitat, and further down the route near the community of Blue River, a group called the Tiny House Warriors continues to fight the pipeline expansion project from a camp of tiny homes. In northern BC, West Moberly First Nation Chief Roland Wilson is suing the BC government and BC Hydro over the Site C Dam, arguing that the flooding of the Peace River Valley in northeastern BC violates protected treaty rights. The First Nation has long opposed the dam and has criticized the BC government for looking to, quote, sink billions more into the project without consulting First Nations or the public, end quote. In a video clip posted by CBC News, Chief Wilson states that the Site C dam has been deemed unsafe and unnecessary and that it is an unlawful project. He also discussed that when Premier John Horgan sent the project for review, the review panel stated that the project was unnecessary, and he expressed his frustration that this kind of project was deemed justifiable against his nation's treaty rights. The West Moberly case is expected to take place next year. The First Nation has previously attempted to take legal action against the project. They lost an application for an injunction that aimed to halt the project in 2015, and a federal court also rejected their application for a judicial review of the project. According to Chief Wilson, the court has promised that a judgment will be given before the flooding of the Peace River Valley would begin. The legal preparation process is intense and expensive. Organizations like Raven Trust are running campaigns to support the West Moberly First Nation in their fight against the destruction of the Peace River Valley. We will link to these campaigns on our website so you can learn more. The Nitsitsipi water protectors are fighting to protect their traditional territory against coal mining in the Alberta Rocky Mountains eastern slopes. The Nitsitsipi water protectors was formed in 2020 in response to the threat of coal development projects within Blackfoot traditional territory and the headwaters of the Old Man River in Alberta. They are a grassroots collective of Nitsitsipi land and water defenders 
who have been lobbying government at the provincial and federal levels and mobilizing initiatives to stop all proposed open-pit coal mining development projects. In February, the Nitsitsipi Water Protectors launched a petition asking for the Canadian federal government to intervene in the Alberta government's plan to expand coal mining in the province. They argued that Alberta failed to consult First Nations when they rescinded the 1976 coal mining policy, and even when the province backpedaled and the policy was reinstated after public backlash, multiple coal mining leases are still active. The petition stated that coal mining on the formerly protected land under the 1976 coal policy threatens the environment and infringes on the treaty rights of First Nations in the territories of Treaties 6, 7, and 8. More than 18,000 people across Canada signed the petition, and NDP Member of Parliament Heather McPherson for Edmonton Strathcona tabled the petition in the House of Commons early last week. McPherson urged the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and the federal government to delay the decision on projects like the Grassy Mountain Coal Project until the cumulative impacts of all mining activity in the area is considered. On Saturday, March 27th, the Nitsitsipi Water Protectors led a solidarity march against open-pit coal mining in Calgary. Those have been the updates on Indigenous land and water defenders over the past couple of months. Be sure to check out our website for links and more information on these stories that we covered. Let's wrap up this episode with some good news. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell covering the recent baby boom for right whales in the North Atlantic Ocean. In environmental good news, we have some birthdays to celebrate with the arrival of multiple baby North Atlantic right whales, CBC, CNN, The Guardian, and several conservation organizations have been reporting since December on the 2020-2021 right whale calving season, with some going so far as to call it a baby boom. While that term might be demographically incorrect, the birth of 17 live calves in one season is a pretty big deal for the North Atlantic right whale population. The North Atlantic right whale is considered one of the most endangered large whale species on the planet after nearly being hunted to extinction in the early 1900s. Today, the population numbers around 360 individuals with just 100 female whales of reproductive age. To sustain the existing North Atlantic right whale population, scientists have suggested over 22 new members would need to be born and survive every season but only 22 new whales have been observed in the last four seasons combined, and the population has been suffering from an unusual mortality event since 2017, in which more than 10% of the population has died or been seriously injured. The North Atlantic right whale has been protected from commercial harvesting since the 1930s, and today most deaths are caused by ship strike or entanglement in fishing equipment. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada coordinate to protect these whales as they migrate through both nations' coastal waters. North Atlantic right whales begin their life in the warm, shallow waters off of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Northeastern Florida. Calving season lasts from mid-November to the end of March. 
Mama and baby right whales are observed as they travel from their calving waters over 1,000 kilometers north to feed off the coast of New England and the Maritime Provinces. Female North Atlantic right whales reach reproductive maturity, meaning they can start having babies at around 10 years old. Once mature, right whales can calve about once every three years, but compounding their population decline is that most whales are having babies closer to every six to 10 years. Biologists suggest stress from human threats, like all those ships and fishing gear, is one reason the whales are reproducing at a slower rate. Honestly, I didn't know much about the right whale before this episode, which is maybe not surprising because I have been born and raised nearly 5,000 kilometers from the Atlantic Ocean. But now that I know, oh my heart. The North Atlantic right whale can grow to be 15 meters long, weigh over 140,000 pounds, and live for almost 70 years. They are filter feeders, so basically they're harmless, and they often come close to the shore, meaning humans can marvel at their gentle ocean giant majesty. They also have a catalog. No, you can't order your own North Atlantic right whale through the mail, but with such a small population, a catalog of every identified member is kept, and each whale is assigned a four-digit ID number. Whales with unique physical features or who have a strong story or connection to place are often given names as well. To celebrate and honor the existence of these animals on our shared planet, and to help you fall in love and feel your own heart stir at their magnificence, let's dig into the catalog and hear a little bit about the moms and babies of the 2020-2021 right whale calving season. Right whale number 3593 was first sighted with her calf off Leah Hutef Island, North Carolina, on March 11, 2021. 3593 is approximately 16 years old, and this is her first documented calf. Congrats, new mama! Giza, number 3020, and her calf were sighted off the St. John's River entrance, which is near Jacksonville, Florida, on March 4, 2021. Giza is at least 21 years old, and this is her third known calf. Monarch, number 2460, was spotted with her calf off Alano Beach, Florida on February 12th. Monarch is 27 years old, and this is her fourth known calf. It's been 11 years since she's had her last calf. You still got it, mama. Champagne, number 3904, was first sighted with her calf off Amelia Island, Florida on January 21. Champagne is 12 years old, and this is her first known calf. Champagne's mom, number 1204, was born before 1982 and was still alive as of 2019. 1204 had at least four additional calves, three of whom, all males, were still alive in 2019. Sounds to me like Champagne is sparkling right now. Right Whale 3720 was first sighted with her calf off Wasaw Island, Georgia on January 19th. 3720 is 14 years old and this is her first known calf. 3720's mom, Mantis, has had at least three other calves, all females. 3720 is the first of Mantis's known calves to calve herself. Congratulations, mom and grandma. Bachi, number 3860, was seen with her new calf off Amelia Island, Florida on January 13th. Bachi is 13 years old and survived a vessel strike in 2011 as a juvenile. She went on to have two known calves, including this year's baby. 
Number 3120 was also seen with her new calf off Amelia Island on January 13th. She is 20 years old, and this is her third known calf. She previously calved in 2008 and 2011. Number 3130, 2420, binary, or number 3010, and magic, number 1243, all gave birth this year after not having calved since 2011. Grand Teton, number 1145, was seen with her new calf off the coast of Florida on January 11th. She's approximately 40 years old, and this is her eighth calf. Grand Teton's 2010 calf, Mayport, was last seen entangled during the summer of 2017. She had previously calved in 2016, but that baby has not been seen since 2017 either. White whale number 2420 was seen with her new calf off the coast of Florida on January 11th. She is at least 27 years old, and this is her fifth known calf. 2420 has only been sighted in seven of the last 27 years, mostly in the calving areas. She was first seen in 1994 with a calf, but then wasn't sighted again until 2002 when she was seen with another baby. Her 2011 calf was sighted in the calving grounds this year and is at an age where she could start calving herself. Sounds like somebody might be getting grand calves. The white whale known as Binary, or number 3010, and her calf were sighted off Amelia Island on January 9th. Binary is at least 21 years old, and this is her third known calf. She previously calved in 2005 and 2011, and she was discovered entangled shortly after having her 2011 calf, but was able to shed the gear. Minus one, or number 2430, who is 27 years old, and her new calf were sighted just offshore of South Pont Verde Beach in Florida, on January 8th. Minus One survived a vessel strike sometime before the fall of 2002 when several healed shallow lacerations along her right flank were discovered. She went on to have two female calves in 2007 and 2010 and before having her third calf this year. Magic, number 1243, was seen with a calf off Little Cumberland Island, Georgia on January 4th. Magic is 39 years old and this is her seventh calf. Magic's six previously known calves were all born every two to six years until 2011, her last known birth until now. Once again, Magic, number 2420, number 3130, and Binary were all 2011 moms that did not calve again that we know of until this year. Four of Magic's previous calves have been seen in recent years. It's exciting news when there's only 360 of you. North Atlantic right whale Nosset, number 2413, and her new calf were sighted off Sapilo Island, Georgia, on December 28th. Nosset is 27 years old, and this is her fourth known calf. She's previously calved in 2005, 2011, and 2013. She had her 2013 calf, Monomoy, after surviving a vessel strike the same year. Right whale 3942 was sighted with her calf off Hilton Head, South Carolina on December 17th. Our number 3942 is 12 years old, and this is her first known calf. 3942 is the daughter of Kleenex, who has had at least seven calves. In mid-April 2018, disentanglement experts attempted to free Kleenex from a fishing rope. It had been wrapped around her jaw for at least three years, impacting her ability to eat. They were able to partially cut the line on Kleenex, but have not sighted her since July 2018. Sad. On December 6th, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission spotted a right whale calf swimming with a pod of bottlenose dolphins off Milano Beach. That baby belonged to Millipede, number 3520, who is 16 years old and survived a vessel strike as a calf. She went on to have two known calves, including this season's. Finally, the one that kicked off this year's calving season, 
The first live North Atlantic right whale calf of the season was spotted by Clearwater Aquarium biologists off Cumberland Island on December 4th. The mother, Caimenia, or number 4040, was born in 2008 and this is her first known calf. She was disentangled in 2011 as a juvenile from U.S. trap pot gear. Without those disentanglements efforts, she may not have survived in order to calve this year. So thank you for joining me in saying happy birthday and congratulations to the 17 new 2020-2021 North Atlantic right whale calves and mamas. I hope you celebrate this very good news story. Thanks, Elizabeth, and thanks to the rest of our team for their coverage of the environmental news for the month of March. That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Hannah Cunningham and Tiana Barbara Cross. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>